Good morning, folks. Good morning, good morning. My name is Ben, and it is uh, Sunday, April 19th, and we are three, four, five. How far are we into this uh, global sort of lockdown? Boy, it has us spun, doesn't it? Uh, it's hard to stay focused, for, for me anyway. It's hard to not be confused. And I think that confusing, sort of fear-producing, um, you know, short breath <laughs> kind of feeling uh, is, is coming from a voice of desolation and not the consolation of God's Spirit. And I hope that we can together, you know, uh, this is, I would think, the biggest reason we come together is to hear the voice of God, uh, especially... Um, especially on normal normal weeks where we're just grinding through uh, an American life and a broken world. Uh, but we can turn to the scriptures during global pandemics too, I suppose. So here we are. <laughs> that, is the, that is the goal today. I, you know, on that note, I want to say, I don't know your experience or, or how, this, how, how you are right now, where this finds you. But in my experience, I have definitely seen the scriptures used as sort of a situational Tylenol. You know, whatever's happening, you know, wake up, read your favorite passages or an inspiring psalm, and that'll help get you through the day. Almost like it's uh, just to ease and give you some relief. Karl Marx, I think, keyed in on that when he said, yeah, Christianity is just the opiate for the masses. You just use it to feel a little better for a, for a skosh. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to engage with the scriptures that way. I've I've come to see them very differently, and I think what we have here are stories that reveal the truth of God and what He's like, and also the history of His people and what it means to live with Him in a world uh, that is, well, prone to the kinds of scenarios we find ourselves in. Quite frankly, so. Welcome to all who are here. I don't know if I already said it, but for Colossae East and all of the Portlanders listening in, welcome and, and definitely to those beyond. Now we're going to begin this morning with the collect out of the Book of Common Prayer. If you've been listening, uh, you've heard me make a mistake here a couple weeks ago. I've always been setting up our Sundays according to the Revised Common Lectionary, but the version that I use has the collect in each day, and I just figured it was part of that book. It's actually not. It's excerpted out of the 1979 Book of Common Prayer. So if you have the Book of Common Prayer, we're in the collect for today. And if not, uh, just listen along. And the idea here is that we pray these words together as a small community in Portland, but also... Uh, we're praying them together with the church throughout the world, or at least all those who are participating in this. So I want to pray this to begin, and then we have two texts that we're going to look carefully at today, First Peter in chapter 1, and then the very end of the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 20. Hope is in the four, and doubt is part of the question. The main uh, character, if you will, for the second part is Doubting Thomas, the great doubter. Perhaps you've been told that doubt uh, is the opposite of faith. And uh, I, would not, I wouldn't hold to that. Um, I like the way Oz Guinness talked about it. He has a book called In Two Minds. 
And it's chapter two or chapter four is titled Hostage Unawares. It's really worth checking out. Um, and he says, you know, doubt is always the beginning of an inquiry. Every discovery we've ever made in the world started with a doubt. You know, I don't know. I doubt that the earth is actually flat. Let's figure this out. Um, doubt is good. Oz Guinness will argue that it, it, what becomes problematic is when doubt enters into your identity. And I think I see that around Portland a lot. Perhaps you do where you are as well. It's kind of this attitude of um, uh, you, you present as smarter when you never truly believe anything. Well, I'm not sure if I can quite hold to that, but yeah, I'll think about it. That almost feels like a, a more intelligent posture. And it's when doubt has hit that sort of maybe core of your identity where you say, yeah, I'm, I'm one who never fully believes because I know something a little bit more. And, and I think that's the place where you've actually uh, become chained. And that would be where doubting can be problematic. But doubt in general, you know, I don't know if God is real. Uh, I don't know if God is good. I've talked with so many full-time pastors who have been in the ministry for over a decade who really question the goodness of God. <laughs> you know, it's a, just a real part of human existence. And if, if it bothers you, uh, you know, read through the Old Testament and the prophets and the, the psalmists who express similar feelings. Well, Thomas is a doubter. At least that's how he's been cast. And we'll, we'll look at him. But before we do, we're going to read First Peter um, and see how this apostle who was an eyewitness to Jesus and walked with him as a disciple. And we'll see what he has to say about this living hope. If you will, um, begin with me by praying. We'll pray the words of the Collect here. Almighty and everlasting God, who in the Pascal mystery established the new covenant of reconciliation, Grant that all who have been reborn into the fellowship of Christ's body may show forth in their lives what they profess by their faith. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Grant that all who have been reborn. That's a, that's a big idea reborn into the fellowship of Christ's body. Entering into the fellowship of Christ's body, entering into the church, is a rebirth. Baptism often signals the entry into the church. And perhaps we move over that concept too quickly sometimes, being reborn. Because if anything, it certainly speaks of an all-encompassing change of life newness of life at its core, doesn't it? To be born. Well, go with me to First Peter chapter 1. We'll read verses 3 through 9. This is from Peter. Verse 3. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again. Because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, now we live with great expectation, or a living hope. Verse 4, And we have a priceless inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, P 
pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. Verse 6, so be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show you that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Through, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him, and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your soul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Rebegetting. This idea of being reborn. Notice that he says, it is right there in verse 3, it is by God's great mercy. So you're thinking about this very, very kind-hearted act of God, uh, and you're not thinking about God giving you what is owed, or um, you having met a mark. And so then it is by God's uh, great equity <laughs> or God's great faithfulness to pay out what he owes people. No, it's by God's great mercy. It's a merciful act that we have been born again. He showed us mercy. And this leads to three things. You can see them right in verse 3, then 1 and 4, and 1 and 5. It leads to a living hope. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, by the way, as I read that text. Uh, the NIV and many others will call a living hope is what we have. This translation says we live with a great expectation. Just a note on that, I think the connection of life to hope and its living, ongoing life, hope, uh, we have a sense of hope that is not in any way like, man, I hope the Green Bay Packers win the Super Bowl. You know, that's what I really want to see happen, but I'm not really sure if it will or not. So here's the hoping. That's not what I mean at all. That's not what Peter means. Um, this is a this is a hope that's rooted in a promise that God has fulfilled. So when Jesus says it is finished, and we know that His work is part of God's saving act, He's saying our hope is Christ, and that Christ is not dead; He's resurrected. So our hope is like a guarantee that we will follow in His footsteps into the resurrection life of the new kingdom. So. Our hope is alive and well and guaranteed. We're banking on him is what that means. So we now live with this great banking on Jesus attitude. And we have a priceless inheritance that's part of this being born again. Didn't have it before. Now you're born into an inheritance. Entering a new family is a big idea there. Um, and this is also the giving of your salvation. We could talk for a long time on both of those words, but right now the idea is to focus on born again um, is an all-encompassing change of life. It puts you in a new family, 
with a new inheritance related to that family, and that's Jesus's inheritance. And remember, what does Jesus own? The whole world, because he made it. <laughs> so that's a pretty good inheritance. And then uh, salvation. And Peter's language of salvation in his second letter is not to escape the world, but to escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desire. That's a really important point, because if we think that just the world's all jacked up, I can't wait to get out of here, we miss the beauty that's all around us and the fact that God said it is good. So Peter's theology, his understanding of salvation, when he says in this born-again reality, you are, you are receiving a living hope, an inheritance, and salvation, that salvation is not uh, getting off the planet. It's being saved from the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. We therefore see in resurrection, again, which we're celebrating in this Easter season, the incorruptible life. We thought it was so corruptible because, oh my gosh, the physical body's dying. And Jesus reminds us and sort of solidifies in that resurrection moment, no, guys, it's not just bread and water and shelter you need. Life is more. That is the whole invitation of John uh, in his gospel, which we'll get to later. I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, so here we are. I, I want us to think about being born again, whole new change of life. So today's April 19th. April 18th for me, it marks the day that I remember doing something that folks might call, um, quote, giving your life to the Lord or, quote, believing in Jesus. Some might call it confessing faith in Christ or something like that. Some would call it a sinner's prayer. Billy Graham would have called it a moment of decision. For me, that was uh, April 18th. Uh, boy, it, a, a long time ago, 16 years ago. <laughs> uh, and I was in a county jail cell in St. Cloud, Minnesota. Head was pounding. I was hungover. Uh, my truck was in the impound lot. Or it wasn't a truck. It wasn't. I had already wrecked my truck. It was a little Volkswagen Jetta. Uh, it was the third time that I had been in a county jail in 14 months. And my baseline conclusion, I remember, what a morning that was. <laughs> I woke up this morning and was outside listening to birds and felt a sense of peace. But 16 years ago on this morning, I woke up and I was broken. I was suicidal. They had taken my shoelaces and belt because I was I was done with life my heart was broken and when I woke up that morning it was a moment of prayer for me I was a, I was crying out to God my trust in my own ability to make decisions was shot at that point I felt totally desperate I remember I remember just thinking like here I am so you know from from Whenever I could start making decisions on what to do, I've always made decisions that I thought would bring bring me into a better spot, you know, that would help me in some way, advance my life or cause. <laughs> and it's kind of, you're, you're looking out of a jail cell window at a ratty old parking lot and saying to yourself, I don't know if I've done such a good job in my decision making here. And I was, I just didn't, I was so upside down. So I cried out to Jesus and I think God showed a great mercy to me that day. And I think it was by that mercy that I have been born again. So I can relate to Peter here. And I can relate to this sense of hope, being a living hope, and that uh, trying to get at this um, totally new way of thinking and feeling uh, and living. 
it's just a it's a different sense of why I'm here and what this life is about. I think most of my life before that moment uh, was was about avoiding pain. And I had a good deal of it dealt early on in life. And I think I just hit the gas pedal and found lots of ways to run from pain. So then my hope was basically anchored in finding a pain-free way of living. And there were lots of promises around that, that said, do this or buy this and you're going to get there. Well, anyway, as I've said, all of that, that chasing that that kind of hopefulness led me into a pretty uh, pretty confining spot, <laughs> you know. In many ways, uh, physically, spiritually, emotionally, I was I was chained up. What are we getting at? Rebirth, uh, born again, not just an, an amendment to your life. It's a total restart, a rebeginning, a new existence. It's like you're being reframed, reformed transformed is probably the best word i want to pause and complain if you will feels like a good thing to do right i'm <laughs> just kidding no i want to if you could let me go off on a side note just for a second because i want to say that the this kind of idea being born again it does not allow um for the popularized american version of christianity and we've all been exposed to it lived in it participated in it uh, certainly hear about it on the TV all the time. Let's call it pop Christianity, and I would say in our world, it is an addition to the life that you already have. It's not a rebirth. Pop Christianity is a social system aimed at including and excluding certain kinds of people. I think that's right. And I think in this sense, it is hardly different from the kind of Judaism that Jesus rejects. So when we're in the Gospels seeing Jesus... He's getting up in their face about the way that they are using the things of God, his law, his way of worship, etc., uh, to be extremely uh, cruel toward those who are not of their lineage. Uh, so it's, it's interesting. And it had be, they had used, it becomes this way in Jesus' day of using the scriptures to establish guidelines for judging who's in and who's out of fellowship with the right kinds of people. Well, I would say that in the end, the pop Christianity that you see on TV is mostly just a health-wealth-oriented nationalism. Uh, it's been dubbed by some, and I would agree with this term, as a moralistic, therapeutic deism. Um, the belief that there is a God who's out there and who's going to therapy me or fix me if I do good and moral things. So the idea, you think about language like this. If you, quote, walk with the Lord, end quote, uh, he will bless you. And then walking with the Lord means being a good Republican who stays sober at all times, wears a modest haircut, good clothing, doesn't smoke or cuss, avoids extramarital sex, attends church, knows at least three Bible verses, one of which is a life verse. You know, um, that is definitely a caricature and i'm sorry it might not be uh it might not be super accurate but i don't know that it's totally unfair that is how i i interpret anyway the way that i've heard you know walking with the lord it's like this this sort of moral and dress and speech code but look this has nothing to do with a totally new existence it just has to do with new behaviors 
And those new behaviors all promise to improve your experience of life, to, to, to make it more fulfilling and joyous. So in that moment in the jail cell, had I understood Christianity as just a way to improve my spot, then I would have seen that kind of Christianity as helpful. Okay, if I, you know, if I stop drinking whiskey by two bottles a day, I might actually feel a little better. <laughs> Whoa! Okay, well, I, I modified my behavior and it brought me some benefit, for sure. I've, I've altered that life. Being born again is way, way more than that. And I think a lot of pop Christianity has not gotten past, this is going to make your life a lot better. Here's, follow this thought with me just a bit more. Uh, the idea is, if you adapt these socially acceptable sort of boundary marker behaviors, wear this, say this, do this, don't do that, etc., your life will be more fulfilling and joyous. You will be engaged in that sort of constitutionally guaranteed pursuit of happiness. And you'll be doing it with more efficiency, better marriages, better everything, you know. Then... Notice, for that to be true, you kind of have to know ahead of time what will make you happy, don't you? And you also have to know ahead of time what is good. So, if my belief in the existence of God is good, and if I do good things, then he will fix me, notice that all depends on yourself first. There's not a question in there about what God the Creator says is good. There's no need to learn it or see it. God is here to help you achieve what you already feel you need deep down. That's the message of popular Christianity. Never stated so bluntly, but it's there. You know, my life is going bad. Why? Well, it's because of this one thing. I just can't stop. Yep, well, get with God and start walking with the Lord, and then your life's going to get better. Okay, the idea that you start with is I know what I need to do because I know what's broken and I know what will be better. And I'll be honest, sometimes you're probably right. <laughs> Oftentimes we're way off the mark, though. My suspicion is that if you're in the U.S. listening to this right now, you've heard more of a pop American gospel than you have the gospel of Jesus. Um, it, and that was certainly me heading into jail for the third time. My growing up, we memorized Bible verses and attended church twice a week. We wore decent clothes to church events, never cussed, never. We only watched G-rated movies that had been further edited by John MacArthur, you know. <laughs> I mean, it was clean. And we knew, we knew that this so pleased our God that he would show us favor when he came to slaughter all the sinners. My overseers at that time were visibly excited at the idea of enemies burning forever in a tormenting hell. This was the God that they wanted and needed. Why? I think it helped that sense of fulfillment. It, it made me feel more confident, you know. Even more, it requires no actual change of life. You just have to change some behavior, mostly the visible ones. And most times, as these past decades have, I think, shown us, just a modification of public behavior. Not even all behavior. <laughs> Private behavior is not even really up for discussion at that point because it, in that kind of theology, it doesn't really even matter. I think pop Christianity, I'm almost done here, just bear with me. Pop Christianity is a sentimental religion and it is definitely the opiate for the masses. I think Marx was wrong about real Christianity, but he hit the bullseye in relationship to much of what he saw publicly. 
It had become a way to soothe ourselves just long enough to get through the day and week, maybe a rough year, uh, hoping to slide into our graves as pain-free as possible, you know? I think that in the worst place, notice now, because this version of Christianity, I hate to even use the word Christianity around it, has become so popularized, we end up oftentimes thinking that we're following Jesus and because we're following those you know, five or ten public moral codes. Uh, and then thinking if we do that, we're supposed to be getting better, but things are not getting better. And I don't know if God even cares. And all of a sudden we think he doesn't listen to our prayers. We think he's not anywhere around us. And because we don't see and take heed of this idea of being born again, a full transition change of life, um, we end up just as sort of broken and angsty, but now thinking it's God's fault. <laughs> it's, it's worse than where we started. In, in the pop Christianity, because it's not a transformation, says that you can be cruel, hateful, vindictive, reclusive, greedy, controlled by lust. You can be vain, rude. You can be sometimes murderous as long as you mean well, as long as your intentions are good. So in sum, the popular version, the popularized sort of fake version of, of uh, you know, faith-based something or other. <laughs> I don't even want to say Christian, but it, it, you can simmer it down to this. Three main points. You are the most important part of the world, and your personal experience of life is your number one goal. Two, God is real, and if you believe that and do good things, he will improve your life. Three, all of what it means to grow and improve and be healthy is determined by you and the sources of information that you choose as your guides. Okay? Now, I, we could totally debate that back and forth. That's my side note on pop Christianity. But I think it's like that. You're the master of your empire, it's up to you to decide what's right, wrong, healthy, good, and God is going to help you get through the tough days kind of thing. Compare that now to what we're left with in terms of an apostolic, Jesus-instructed version of Christian faith. I'll try, I mean, we could simmer this in all kinds of points, but I'll try to make the same three in reverse. Everything that you thought was good or that you thought you knew needs to be reframed entirely by God. Okay, point, that's point one in terms of an apostolic, Jesus-instructed picture of Christian faith. Number one, you totally changed. What we thought was good and know, what you know to be true, needs to be entirely reframed by God. Two, this reframing of your heart and mind and soul and strength, so every part of you, will transform you into a loving human being whether or not that love brings you much pleasure or not. And three, it is the love of God demonstrated in the cross that we pursue. And we pursue it in this way. We work to love others like God does. And we work to trust that he loves us like he says he does. Neither are easy, both are costly. And both take a lifetime of learning and living. 
it might behoove us to even just go back and write those six points down next to each other and see how they're so different. Pop Christianity maintains that you're the most important part of your world and you, you really already know what you need to. You just need help to get there. Bible, Christian, uh, apostolic, Jesus Christianity, his way, says only God knows what is good and it's going to take a whole long bit of time working and living with him as he transforms you into somebody who can actually know that. The point here now is to trust, not to think you know but to know that he does and will love you and help you. It's like, he, it's like he says, Ben, you haven't actually seen what real love is yet. You might feel like you, you want to be loved or you want to love others, but you don't even quite know what love is. Stay with me and I'll be able to show you. I think Jesus has been telling me that. And, and I think my upbringing taught me that love was actually quite dangerous. And Jesus has had and has continued to teach me that it's actually not, not when it's real. And I think he says, you know, I'm never going to give you what you think you want. This is why that pop Christianity doesn't work. It's not about getting what we want. It's about becoming new people. And I think he has to say, and he does say through our experience and certainly through the word of God, I'm never going to give you what you think you want. I'm going to show you what you actually want. I know. I know because I made you. So you think you want a better income. And, and you think that if you do the right things and say, you know, if you play your cards right, you can get that. And I want to actually show you, you, you want to ask you, why do you want the better income? Well, if I have a better income, I can have this stuff or this place to live or this kind of security or this sort of future. He says, okay, and why do you want those things? And, and we'll ultimately often trace it down to, well, I, I want a better income because really I want to be respected and cared for and I want to be safe. And it will ultimately bring those kinds of things for me. And then Jesus, I think, smiles with this <laughs> big sort of looking right into your soul sort of smile. And he says, I know what you want even more than you do. Trust me. Trust me. I'll show you, and then we'll see there's a better way to go about that. Um, Jesus has had to teach me a lot of things. <laughs> I think I think it's going to take him 30 or 40 trillion years, you know, once we're working with him in eternity before he's got me all taught up. I don't know what I'm talking about here. Sorry, I'm losing my track. The point here, again... I keep saying it, and then we should move on. B born again, re-begetting, total change of life, not just a way to get a better life that you've sort of imagined. And then there's one last point I want to make before we move to John, because I anticipate a question like this. Well, how do you know, Ben? Pastor Ben, how do you know? I like the idea that God is loving, but man, some of those stories about him just look brutal. You know, how do you know that he's good? How do you know that he's uh, safe? Look at, remember how Peter opened this passage. Um, Praise, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be. That's a short hymn or a praise, a doxology. And he's Jewish, and so the most common opening to a prayer would be, blessed are you, O God. 
all over the place, all over the Old Testament, everywhere. Blessed are you, O God, as we go to God in prayer, uh, old school. But Christians adapt that. They keep that same form, blessing God, but they adapt it to say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. And that's a significant change because it's it's signaling that uh, there is something new, and I think specifically God has come in close. Our Lord Jesus is a human being who walked among us. God has come into the neighborhood at this point. No longer is he relatively unknowable. And I missed this for a really long time. Um, in a good effort to teach me that the Bible is completely true, I was also mistakenly taught that all of the information about God in the Bible is equally uh, easy to understand and equally true however you interpret it. <laughs> and so, you know, you read a passage and interpret God to be a total maniac, and then you read another passage and interpret God to be a really loving being, and you're like, what do I do here? Oh man, it was very confusing. Well, I, I wasn't taught, and I think Hebrews 1 teaches all of us and other places to understand who God is and what he's like, first and foremost, through Jesus. Jesus is how we interpret the rest of the scriptures, because we have all longed for knowledge of what God is like. Listen to the opening of Hebrews 1 here before we go to John. Um, Long ago, God spoke in many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. So, Moses, the ancestors, uh, the prophets. You can read them in the Old Testament and know this is how God spoke to us. Lots of times, lots of ways, he did this. Verse 2, and now in these days he has spoken to us through his son. Uh, that's a big deal. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance so that everything is Jesus' inheritance. That's yours and mine as well. That's a whole other conversation, but it's beautiful. And through the Son, he created the universe. Now verse 3, the Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. So I think other translations say he uh, represents the exact imprint of God's nature. If you want to know what God is like, yes, read the words of the ancestors. Yes, hear the oracles of the prophets. Yes, read the poetry and the history of the Old Testament. But you, like all human beings, will have confusing moments where you say, what is God actually like? Is he actually wicked and cruel? There's just moments where he appears to be that way. And when you see him fully in Jesus, and Jesus says, if you're looking at me, you're looking at the Father, now we know what he's like. Did Jesus slaughter his enemies? No. What did he do? He comes to forgive and bring healing and love. We, therefore, by looking at Jesus, can be safe with God and come to him as kind of like children can do if their parent is loving. You may or may not have experienced that, but if you can imagine a loving parent and how safe you can be with that person, this is how God is like a healer. And this is why I think Peter can say, blessed be him, our Lord Jesus Christ, and blessed be his Father, our one true God. Yeah? Well, there it is, our one true God, this idea, Jesus as God, and that will take us into the passage on John. My Lord and my God. Imagine somebody saying that to another human being. 
You are my Lord, so you are the authority over me. I'll do as you ask. And you are my God. That's more than just my authority here. You are the God who I believe to be the source of all life and creation. <laughs> Saying that to a person. To really, truly say that to another being. I'll tell you what, I have definitely passed over that idea very quickly and flippantly pretty much every time I read it. <laughs> Why? Well, I think it's kind of cliche or melodramatic, quite frankly. I mean, how many times have you heard people say, My God! My God! Or, This is my God! Ha ha ha! I've seen so many horrible images of human beings crying out, This is all for my God! Right before they're cutting down another person or blowing up an enemy. And I've experienced sentimental, sort of weeping, emotional sap from that visibly angry, vicious person crying out, This is all about my Jesus. Nobody can take away my God. You know, and they're like about to kill you. <laughs> uh, or take from you or, you know, publicly humiliate you or something. There's this, 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 this common way that we see people crying out to their God also makes me numb to the whole notion. So when I read it in the Bible, I read, you know, we're going to read Thomas say, my Lord and my God. I'm like, okay, next sentence. But I want to try to get into those first century dudes Birkenstocks for a second. I know they didn't have Birkenstocks. Just work with me. here. Let's get into their sandals and feel that idea of a king or a concept better. The presence of a true king, a Lord over you. You know, our heritage in America is it makes it very difficult to understand that concept of a king because we you know we're take the land Paul Revere shoot the redcoats we're live free or die and we have this personal life personal liberty and a personal pursuit of happiness that's our heritage it has very little to do with authorities over us <laughs> and a lot to do with we have the authority personally Peter's heritage is death, destruction, oppression by foreign invaders for like hundreds of years. By his day, I think it's been like 600 years since Israel was really anything to speak of. Yes, the exile is over. Yeah, the temple was kind of rebuilt, sort of. But man, after the Babylonian Chaldean guys blasted them, there were more enemies that came at Israel. And now Peter, Jesus, I mean, the whole crucifixion scene, right? It's, we're under Roman imperial guard. And the emperor of Rome claims to be deity. And everybody in the empire has to own that, whether they want to or not, in some way or another, right? So paying taxes was one way that you own that very tangibly. So Peter's heritage before that 600 years, however, also includes the great promises of God and the great King David, whose lineage was the true Messiah. The, the, the Savior, the anointed one coming to save. Peter's life would be way better under a benevolent king that was appointed by that one true God, wouldn't it? Especially because that Lord was promised to eradicate all other power, bring every world ruler to his knees or her knees, to reign supreme, this ruler was going to do, Peter would believe. If we can get past all of this sort of Hollywood blurriness or the news stories with people screaming, my God, right before silly or horrible things, and try to feel what it would mean for a person like I just described in the first century, who is oppressed, a hurting Jewish, 
who sees, hears, and believes that Jesus is the appointed Messiah, the king come to reign, right there in the midst of John and Peter and all the rest of the disciples, it's like we this is him. Um, and one of them actually says, you're there with everybody, and one of them just says, my Lord and my God. You know, that's a big, big deal, way more than the way I've experienced it. And this is the first time in John's whole gospel where Jesus is addressed in the absolute sense, my God. And who is the one who says that, my Lord and my God? Well, it's Thomas. Thomas the doubter. I think doubting Thomas gets a undeserved bad rap sometimes. Well, let's get into this story uh, in John 20. It's Easter Sunday still. You know, the word is out. At our last scene, Mary Magdalene was there. Uh, and we got to see her and some others discovering this empty tomb. We'll be in John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. Uh, and just to set it up for a second, here we are. You know, when the pressure for the crucifixion uh, came hard, they scattered in fear. The disciples were known associates of Jesus, and he was now tried, convicted, and executed. <laughs> you know, this is a this is real, real rough spot to be in. So they scatter in that moment before the crucifixion and are noticeably totally out of the picture for the whole scene. Now they've apparently regathered, but not without great caution. They're clearly afraid. Um, they haven't just shut the door. They've locked the door, it says. Or it will say, you'll see. Um, in the other gospel accounts, we see a sense of fear even toward Jesus as they, as they you know, approach him. Um, we'll save that for another time, though. What he is going to, well, let's just stop talking about it and get right into it. All right. Just know the scene is Jesus has just been tried, tried with quote, uh, quote marks around it. You know, it wasn't really a, a trial. Or a, you know, quote, conviction too. But you don't have to put quote marks around executed. That was straight up execution. They killed him. Everybody's afraid. They're in the room. Here we go. First uh, Peter, sorry. <laughs> hey, John. That's what we're talking about. John chapter 20. Uh, we'll read verses 19 through 31. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And again he said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, uh, nicknamed the twin, or Didymus, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, We have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and and place my hand into the wound in his side. I won't believe it until that happens. Verse 26. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. 
The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Interesting. Verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless anymore. Believe. Verse 28. My Lord and my God. Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. This is the gospel. Thanks be to God. The great doubter believes. Isn't that amazing? The goal of the book is that we would believe. Uh, that's what it says right there in, in verses 30 and 31. This is the purpose. And it's not just that we would believe, but that we would actually have life. Eternal life. He doesn't say eternal here, just life. But if you've read John, the first 19 chapters, you know that when he says life, he's talking about Jesus' life, which is an indestructible life. It's interesting, coming from Jesus, the teacher of life who refused to defend or protect his life and ended up dead. <laughs> you know? Um, then Easter comes, though. So this is the moment. We're listening to Jesus, the great teacher of life, and we really believed him, and he could not even protect his life as well as we could, because we're still breathing, and he's dead. But then Easter. He's alive, he's in the flesh, and it's almost like his very presence demands that we face a question. Maybe Jesus was protecting his life. Maybe he was defending his life with ferocious commitment and dedication to its preservation. Maybe it is us who have become content on destroying life. We thought Jesus had destroyed his and wasted it by submitting to Rome, and instead he strengthened and glorified it. Meanwhile, we think we're strengthening and glorifying ours, and we all end up dead. Maybe these trials we're going through are not diminishing us, but they're strengthening our faith. Isn't that exactly what Peter said? And I think the disciples are learning exactly that. Let's walk back through this once more, all right? Um, the, the meeting doors are locked. They're afraid, and Jesus shows up. Okay, the, I, it feels like he walked right through the wall. It, it doesn't say, and Jesus found a key under the doormat and unlocked, the, you know. <laughs> he just came in. He was right there. Suddenly is the word. Immediately, right then, Jesus was standing there among them. And that's an imperative exclamation point kind of statement. Okay, certainly they're terrified. So he says, peace be with you. He says this three times, doesn't he? It's amazing. And as he spoke, he showed them the wounds and they were filled with joy, says the New Living. Others say they were rejoicing. And I just want to emphasize this is way more than 
Awesome, congrats on the resurrect, bro. Like, good to see you. It's not that kind of congratulation. Think deep, perhaps the deepest fulfillment of joy you can imagine. Almost like an overwhelming sense of relief and happiness and hope all mixed into one. They are rejoicing when they see him. And again, he says, peace be with you. And notice he says, then he breathed on them and said, and he didn't breathe into them. At first creation, Genesis 1, God breathes existence into the being. Here he breathes onto the being and breathes what? The Holy Spirit. And then verse 23 gives us the oddest statement. If you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. And if you do not forgive, they're not forgiven. All right. I think it could be helpful to think a little bit more about verse 23. <laughs> uh, so let's do that for a second. I, I've been a pastor and a teacher for quite a while now, and I encounter this verse a lot. What the heck does it mean? Like, if I, I personally don't forgive somebody, then God won't? It certainly reads that way. Here, as always, context is so important. John is writing, and we are at the end of his book here, so he's said a lot of stuff already. And he assumes, I think, fairly, that we know what he said. Anytime you're going to say, here's what a passage means, please, please have read the book completely first so you can get a sense of the whole. Well, if we, we can't review the entire Gospel of John right now, but I can review a few key points right in the very opening. Look, the Lamb of God... John is saying to Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world. Not the Lamb of God plus other people who affirm who he should take, you know. It's just the, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of, of who? The world. Big statement. Uh, it is in Christ, this is in chapter 8, it is in Christ that we have redemption from the slavery of sin. Um, in Christ we are moving, John loves the language of darkness and light. We're moving from darkness into light when we're in Christ. Not perishing, but having eternal life. That's in John 3. Having the privilege of becoming the children of God. Back to John 1. Um, as opposed to remaining under God's wrath, or dying in sin, or having sin remaining. That's John 8 and 9. So, he said, as people who are in Christ, we are having our sins taken away, ours with the rest of the world's. We're not perishing. We're not under God's wrath, and we have no sin remaining. So we've already heard John say that forgiveness is Jesus's deal, and that in his forgiveness, there will be no sin remaining, no darkness, nothing that is stuck to you still or inside you in a negative way. We cannot, I say, therefore conclude that he is here entering a new idea in verse 23, which is Jesus will do all this stuff as long as the human beings in the world agree. That a human decision can hold sway over God's forgiveness. In context of the whole book, it's just not what John is saying. Well, what is he saying then? I think he's talking about joining Jesus. So he has breathed on us the Holy Spirit, or let's be more accurate actually, He's breathed on the disciples in this room. Arguably the twelve minus Thomas, or not Thomas, uh, Judas. Judas is, I, I think, swinging somewhere. That was a bad joke. Uh, but yeah, Judas has had a very tragic outcome. So the, he's in this room with the disciples, and he those are whom he breathes the Holy Spirit onto. 
well, we don't jo we, we don't join and then become the controllers of God's will. He's not saying, Peter, you're in charge of God now. Tell him what he needs to do. Peter, the disciples, you and I, we join as learners, uh, participants. And when these disciples are given the power to forgive or retain, those are the verbs, you have the power now to forgive or retain sins, based on what John has already written, it's not realistic to see them as placing a moral code on folks and judging them by it. Instead, the authority to forgive and retain given to them is the same authority given to Jesus, isn't it? That's what's been said already. The Father gave Jesus that authority or that right. So Jesus has that, and we're invited to participate with Jesus. They place people, therefore, these disciples now, perhaps we can extend it to you and I, this sense of with the Holy Spirit breathed on us, we join with Jesus in setting people before a decision to accept in faith the gospel of Jesus, his grace, or to reject it and not accept it in faith. In doing so, all who accept in faith Jesus' forgiveness uh, fully receive it. It is forgiven. And those who don't, it's retained. But it's the decision of Jesus, and you and I participate with his work by doing what he did, which is helping people to see there's a different way to go here. You have an option. That was the option I was faced with on April 18th, 16 years ago. So this is that language of sending, I think. In verse 23, it's not an ambiguous imparting of final judgment. Like It's not like, well, i got to go, so you judge these people now. I'll see you later. No, he has already said in verse 21, I am sending you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Okay? I'm sending you to do what I've shown you to do. You are not now God. You're my body in this world. And you have the authority to tell people about who I am because you're experiencing life with me. And to be present, to present me truthfully, to offer all of the exact same things that I've offered to you, which is life with me in community, liberty with me inside of an eternal community of humanity and divinity united, and the pursuit of not happiness, but of love. Well, that's very different, isn't it, than the personal pursuit of life and the personal pursuit of liberty and the pursuit of my personal happiness. No, life with Jesus is he'll give you life in community with him and others, liberty inside of an eternal community of both human and divine as one, and the pursuit of love, not personal satisfaction, love, and that's much bigger personal satisfaction is enveloped within the huge concept of love, but love is much bigger. This is also a big deal, I think, because it's the Jewish religious authority who claims such power back in their day. They're saying, we have the power to include or exclude. When Jesus says, now it's you guys, my church apostles, the foundation of the church, he's saying, now it's the church's authority because the church is my body in the world. And it is entirely and utterly the loving, merciful, forgiving power of Jesus himself. 
He's, that power is the power with such authority. Remember, it was not the violent overthrow of worldly power that persuaded people he was God. It was the exact opposite. People saw the power in his weakness. And it was, at the most simmered down essence, it was forgiveness. Forgiveness for all. Not forced upon you. Perhaps it was not mandated, perhaps, but absolutely offered to everybody without discrimination or preference in any way. It was not his ability to slaughter enemies that revealed his power. It was his ability to forgive them. Everybody was waiting for somebody who could show how powerful they were by destroying everybody they didn't like. And instead, they were persuaded by his love. My friends, this is the power of the church today, and we're foolish if we miss it. And this is the power that we have in the COVID-19 moment that we find ourselves in, because so much will compel us to act in some way that is not out of the love of Christ. To forgive, to invite, to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive so often and so fully that we actually transform into the warm light of love in this world. We become life to everybody in our midst. You know it's true. You and I are both hearing the condemnation all around us. It's anything but life. That love and life and all of its weakness is what caused these first disciples and apostles to see the true God, I think. So let me just share an idea or maybe a pondering that I've had about all this lately. And I'm not saying that this is for sure you know, what the Bible teaches, but I'm wondering if something like this might have been the case. What if these disciples were having a very difficult time with actually knowing God and believing in his goodness? Like maybe they were torn on the inside. They desperately wanted the situation that they were in to be resolved. Lots of pain. You know, there were so much injustice around them. Br brutal treatment of people around. So they, on one hand, love the notion of a powerful God who will just come and destroy evil and get rid of all the bad stuff. But then there's this even deeper part of them that kind of realizes that they also beat their children. And they scream at their wives too. And they hide things and they twist the rules. They know deep down that they cheat and steal. They bend. And it's kind of like if we're really going to be honest, pay attention, we really don't want social justice as much as we want social mercy, social grace. But what if we were a people bent on social mercy and social grace? What if a fear of hell for these guys had nothing to do with these disciples' willingness to live with Jesus? Most Christians I know in America today would say they came to faith because they were afraid of going to a fiery eternal hell. That's just not how it was with the Jewish folks. What if instead they saw in him the light? They saw, they heard a ring of truth in what he said, a light that burned throughout the Old Testament that made Jesus somehow, though he was new, very familiar to them. Like sheep who know a shepherd's voice. But now that they experienced his real love and forgiveness and goodness, it was that that compelled them. They wanted a ruler, a king, who would come and destroy all the bad guys. And Jesus says to them, no, what you really want is to be safe and to be loved. 
And when Jesus comes in and, and, and presents as the God who destroys all sin, I mean, if you know that you've ever done sin, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm in trouble. And Jesus says, I want to hug you, not burn you. And they say, okay, it is the love of Christ that compels us, the Apostle Paul will say later. During COVID-19, may we be compelled powerfully to do good, but not compelled by the fear of what might happen if we don't do good. See what I said there? Sometimes we're compelled to do good because if we don't, people could be hurt or die. Sometimes we're compelled because of the positive status that good works achieve for us socially. We got to get out there and do something and show the neighbors what the right thing to do is. Virtue signal, virtue signal. Sometimes that's why we're compelled. No, these disciples were simply compelled by this love that finally taught us and showed us that we are safe with God and completely loved by Him. And here's Didymus. Didymus, uh, the twin, is one of those people who, though previously skeptical, is persuaded to believe. And He's more commonly known as Doubting Thomas. We'll finish with him. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said, I don't believe it. <laughs> I just love it. I don't believe it. And then in 28, he's come full circle. My Lord and my God. And as I mentioned before, for the first time in John's gospel, Jesus is, a, is addressed in the absolute sense, my God. Uh, it's a big deal. The opening words in John say that. The, the word was God. And here a human being in Thomas is saying this word, this logos become flesh, Jesus who I see is God. And that's in Greek writing, uh, an inclusio, if you will, two repeated ideas or phrases or concepts. And the idea that the writer wants you to see is that everything I wrote in between these two bookends, it opens with Jesus is God and ends with a person saying Jesus is God. It's like, all the stuff in between those two bookends was meant to make that key point. All right? And here, in this context, it has everything to do with believing that. Um, the gospel, the good news, comes to this world through the word of God, Jesus, in the flesh. The most compelling parts of his ministry were certainly his miraculous power, suggesting that he was uniquely bound to God. Uh, his overwhelming and radical, sometimes illegal, way of love for all and his resurrection. So all of this has m moved us to actually believe. Folks really wake up at this moment, and, and that's Thomas here. He sees and he touches and he believes. He says, this is real. Oh my goodness. But then verse 29 sometimes gets interpreted as this sort of universal statement for all people at all times. Like, if you hadn't been so dowdy, then you would have already believed. Hey, everyone, come and look at Thomas. See how dowdy and cynical he looked. <laughs> Don't be like touting Thomas. You got to have faith, not like Thomas. Be a believer, believer, believer. Rah, 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 hee You know, it's like this sort of triumphalist. Don't be like Thomas, the doubting moron. Well, is that what John is actually trying to say? Like Thomas is an inferior example? If you think about it, I don't think that makes much sense. Jesus is talking about a major change that's going to come from this point on. 
blessed, you know, you guys all see me. It's not just Thomas. You believe because you see me. They all believe because they see him. And that's the whole point of John. Because we have seen him, we believe. <laughs> He's not denigrating the need to see to believe, I don't think. I think uh, there is a little bit in there. I'll get to that. Um, but he's saying from this point on, blessed are the people who are going to believe without seeing me. There he's talking to people in uh, 2020 Portland, Oregon and beyond, <laughs> all of us. Uh, why won't we see him? Well, he's going to ascend to heaven, and that's coming up in our next Sunday, the next couple Sundays here. Uh, the time of being able to talk, meet for coffee, walk into olive groves, you know, that's all over. They're going to have to believe on a different basis. And what will that be? Well, it'll be the apostolic witness. What you say to them, Peter and Thomas and John and so forth. So for everyone listening this morning, that's you and me, the believers of the future that Jesus was referring to. Um, and he suggests that we would have a special blessing through this walking by faith. Blessed are those who have to believe without seeing and touching me like you've been able to do. Maybe that means we have a special and deep way of knowing God on a very spiritual and trustworthy terms that remain yet unseen. I don't know for sure. But there is for sure a subtle correction in John's words to Thomas too. I don't know if you remembered, but when we were at the tomb scene, it was John who poked his head in, saw the empty tomb, and it's like, and he believed. <laughs> John writing about himself, I love that. He's like, oh, I just needed to see the empty tomb. I was good. But not Thomas. He needed to see more. So, yes, there is a little bit of a, a dig there, a subtle charge. But Thomas needed more. Notice, though, John has just said that the other's belief is because they have seen the Lord. Uh, really, if the idea is you're in a bad spot because you need some sort of tangible evidence to believe, doesn't that make doesn't that bring the same judgment onto all of his miracles? <laughs> I mean, seven major signs in the front end of John, and each time people are, it sparks faith. And that's not talked about as negative, like, yeah, well, they had faith, but <laughs> they needed to see something. To... No, that's not it at all. It's God had to come in and show who he was, reveal who he is, and he does so. And then comes the call to love and follow and trust Jesus. And those evidences are what birthed the foundation of our entire faith. So I don't, I don't see Thomas as being in a terrible spot here. I think we're all in a very similar spot, but you and I do. We do walk by faith instead of being able to sit and give Jesus a hug on a bad day like they got to. The last two lines of our passage uh, really nail it, I think. <laughs> Unlike many books of the Bible... Uh, this one has a very crystal clear purpose statement. You know, in scholarship, we're always trying to determine what was the author's goal here, what was the purpose, and then we take lots of info and we say, I think this is what he was getting at, I think this is the deal. In John, he just says, here's the deal. This is why this is written. Uh, verse 30 and 31. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs, right? Signs that show people something in addition to the ones recorded in this book, but these are written for a purpose, so that you may continue to believe to Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life. If you remember our talk on John 3.16 long ago, I wanted to make the point that 
that that verse is about um, continuous believing. It's a present active participle, ongoing sense of action. John is talking about a way of life, and it's a way of life that is believing that you're safe completely with God because of His forgiveness and love for you, and that you cannot make Him love you more, and you cannot make Him get so angry with you that He rejects you and burns you forever. Instead, he's coming and saying, those kinds of fears can now go away because I have done what needs to be done in terms of punishment and sacrifice and all of that. It's over. It's finished. What needs to happen now is for you to ask yourself, what is it deeply that you really want? Do I truly know what is good in this world? Am I just pursuing a, a way of life that I can get through these rough times? And then I have to ask, get through to what? You know, I have to ask myself, there must be something more than this. There must be something more than just that, just getting through it and hoping for a better day tomorrow. All of these things are the questions that mull around in our lives and hearts. But here is John's statement, and this is this guy saying, I wrote all of this stuff down, the story of this man named Jesus who was God who rose from the dead, and I did it so that you can learn about who you are and continue to believe that he is the, the one that God is definitely saving the entire world through. And that by believing that, you'll have life. When we believe other things more truly, like this life is worthless or this life makes no sense or whatever, it... It, it's like that denigrates life on its own. But when we believe that life comes from a good giver, this Jesus filled with compassion and strength and grace and mercy and, oh, it's just awesome. Uh, and, and that he gives all of those things to you. That's that inheritance Peter talked about. Uh, life is just much less worthless. <laughs> We're, we're here for a reason. We're moving in a direction. And by believing in this Jesus who did what he did and changed the world, it's 2020 today because a man named Jesus born in Nazareth walked the earth about 20, 20 years ago, right? The, it changed the entire framework of the globe, this one person. We have to look at him and listen to him. And by believing that what he is talking about is not a load of crap, it's actually true and he's true, we start to come alive. And it is truly a rebirth, not an amendment, not a little addition to get a nice, balanced American popular life. No, it's total renewal of life. And so my prayer for all of us in this season of COVID, but in every day of our lives, is that we would be brought deeper into that living hope of life with Christ.